This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. With the arrival of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Zoberg Institute on Migration and Mobility has been recording a series of video conversations with experts on migration and COVID. The series is called Immigration Short Takes, Mobility in the Time of COVID-19, and episodes can be found on the Zoberg Institute website. That's zoberginstitute.org. We've selected two of these short takes for this episode of Tempest Tossed. Our first conversation is with Lucas Gutentag, a professor at Stanford Law School and senior research scholar at the Yale Law School. We talk with him about the legality of orders issued by President Trump that restrict the entry of immigrants and asylum seekers to the United States. Then we discuss the human rights of migrants and refugees in the context of the pandemic at the global level with Monet Zard, director of the Forced Migration and Health Program at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, and with Ian Kissel, visiting assistant clinical professor at Cornell Law School and director of the school's Human Rights and Migration Program. Now for the conversation with Lucas Gutentag. Let's start with uh, what I call the green card ban that Trump uh, imposed uh, this week. What can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, so this is a new so-called executive order. It's a presidential proclamation that suspends the issuance of all new green cards uh, as to anyone who's outside the United States um, for 60 days. Uh, It's subject to renewal after that. Uh, It has some exemptions and allows some green cards to continue to be issued. The practical effect of it is to bar issuance of new immigrant visas, green cards, to anyone who's outside the United States and who doesn't fit within any of the exceptions, which means effectively that other than children and spouses of United States citizens, that none of the other family-based immigrant visas will be issued to anyone outside the United States. 90% of them are issued to people from outside the United States. So overwhelmingly what this does is end the family immigration visa system for the period of time that this remains in effect. It also ends any immigrant visas being issued under the diversity system. So the Supreme Court in the five to four decision upheld Trump's so-called Muslim ban early in his administration. Do you think this uh, regulation is subject to serious legal challenge? I think it is subject to serious legal challenge. I think that, of course, the Supreme Court's decision in the travel ban case gave the president a great deal of authority under the same statutory provision that he relied on here, so-called 212F of the Immigration Act. But this is different than that. This is not based on a claim of national security. The justification for this is solely the economic impact of the current pandemic. The justification is that the economic effects of that should allow the president to essentially alter the immigration system. That's a claim that I think goes even beyond what the president made in Trump versus Hawaii, where the basis was, albeit I think the the Supreme Court disregarded the actual motivation, but the claim in that case was national security and that persons from particular countries couldn't be adequately vetted, and so therefore they had to be uh, suspended. This is an attempt to distort the ongoing legal immigration system to the president's liking 
Uh, and that's something that not based on national security. And it's strange. It's not even a health justification. If it's simply an economic justification, you would have thought he would have moved against uh, the labor visas. But actually, most people getting their labor-based green cards are doing so inside the United States, and and that's not prohibited. And moreover, he didn't stop any non-immigrant visas, any any others coming in. It just seems to be directed against family unification, which seems to be the weakest link to an economic claim. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think what we see and what we've seen with the other orders that he's issued, this is really an attempt to achieve through executive fiat what he hasn't been able to achieve through legislation. There were proposals introduced in Congress uh, to, in, to eliminate family immigration or severely restrict it, limit it essentially in exactly the way he's done here to eliminate the diversity visa. Those have failed repeatedly. And now what he's done is try to achieve the same exact end, but by executive order and not based really on the pandemic, not based on any public health justification, but just on what's obviously a devastating economic situation, but one that Congress has in the past addressed, can address again. And if there's going to be a change in the allocation of visa numbers, it has to be done by Congress. That could be true anytime that there's an economic change in the country. Under this rationale, the president could unilaterally change the immigration system anytime he thinks economic circumstances require it. That's not the way the law operates. I want to shift to the southwest border um, because Trump entered into these agreements with Canada and Mexico, which closed the border except to so-called essential workers uh, and U.S. citizens and green card uh, holders. Uh, but following that, the CDC announced really an extraordinary measure for persons who were attempting to get into the country without papers in between so-called ports of entry. Uh, tell us about what the CDC did and, and what, what authority they relied on to do it. Yeah, this is really an unprecedented order that was issued based by first the Health and Human Services issuing a new regulation interpreting a quarantine statute that's been on the books since 1893, was updated in 1944, that's designed to quarantine people who arrive, all people, citizens and non-citizens alike. And then what happened uh, in March is that a new regulation was issued that now singles out non-citizens and says that this quarantine statute can be used to actually remove people from the United States, remove non-citizens from the United States. And based on that, the CDC at this, on the same day issued a regulation uh, and, an, and an order uh, implementing that which says that it will now summarily expel anyone who arrives at the border without valid documents, both uh, entering without documents or at a port of entry uh, without valid documents, that those individuals are subject to summary expulsion without any screening, uh, without any asylum uh, screening, without any compliance with the special statutes governing uh, unaccompanied minors. And it has nothing to do with health conditions because there's no screening for contagion, there's no screening for infection. It's a summary expulsion of individuals without uh, valid documents under a claimed health authority, um, but not based on any finding of uh, disease or contagion. Yes, the CDC said it took a trip to the border and it noticed that people who were picked up at the border for return uh, were held at border patrol stations and they were held there for a while and while proceedings were going on that could lead to the transmission of the disease. You're not persuaded by that justification? Well, no, because what it's saying is basically there's congregate uh, settings in which there's large numbers of people and that the border patrol can't adequately handle that. 
That's essentially what it says. And first, I would suggest that there's a huge amount of travel that continues across the border all the time, right? And so all commercial traffic, all truck traffic, all tourism travel from Mexico and from uh, across Mexico, across the Mexican border is continuing so long as it's by plane. All those people need to be processed. All those people need to be inspected. All of that goes on uh, every day. Um, and so the congregate settings really uh, is, I think, an excuse for applying this specifically to this population, namely those without valid documents, and then to achieve what the Trump administration's also tried to achieve, which is to dismantle uh, the asylum system. If there were real concern about congregate settings, then I would suggest the CDC ought to be concerned about ICE detention centers and jails, where there's been extensive litigation about the risk to detainees of being in those congregate settings where COVID is actually active, as opposed to at the border, where the people coming across the border are much less likely to be infected than the people in the United States. We have the highest rate, the highest death rate, and the people coming across the border are not adding to that risk. Already in place at the border had been this return to Mexico policy where people coming without documents who want to apply for asylum were pushed back to Mexico. So who will this new rule be applying to? Aren't all those people going back to Mexico anyway under the current rules? Well, the difference is the latest estimates in the, the CBP and DHS has been very unforthcoming about how many people are actually been returned. The latest estimates or the latest reports on this are that over 10,000 people have been returned under this CDC order. The difference is that there's absolutely no opportunity for asylum processing at all. It's a summary return, including a summary repatriation to a person's home country. So the MPP, as bad as it is, claims to be complying with the asylum statutes and the prohibition on return. The courts have said that it doesn't, and I agree with that, it doesn't. But the government's at least claiming that they're complying with it. In this case, the argument is that under the Public Health Act, all of those protections can be absolutely ignored, that there's no obligation for any screening whatsoever. So a person who's fearing persecution, a person who's fled persecution, can be summarily returned to their country under the public health exception without any inquiry or screening at all as to whether or not they have an asylum claim. So you seem to have two federal statutes. You have the public health rules saying that CDC can say people who might be contagious can be kept out if they're a health risk. And then you have an asylum statute saying people who are here uh, can apply for asylum. Why do you think the asylum statute takes precedence over the health statute? Well, the, the, the health statute first was never intended to uh, uh, cause people to be expelled at all. It's a quarantine statute that allows holding people until to ensure that they're not contagious and then to admit them. And secondly, that law, as I indicated, dated, dates back to the 1890s and then 1944. The Refugee Protection Act and the Prohibition on Return and the Protection for Children, those were all enacted in the in 1980s, 1990s. Those are fundamental prohibitions on how the government treats individuals physically present in the United States that are absolute requirements. And what the, this order tries to do is to claim that, well, if we're acting under the public health authority, then these later enacted statutes can be ignored. And that's clearly not the case. They're phrased in absolute terms. They talk about returning a person and it doesn't make any exception for health or any other condition. There has to be an individualized screening. If a person qualifies, they're entitled to protection.
So uh, just got time for one more question here, Lucas. So, so if you were the, the czar at the border, uh, what would you do? You still have thousands of people uh, trying to enter without documents. You do have a public health issue. People are supposed to come to the United States are supposed to self-quarantine for two weeks. How would you handle a, a flow of people asking for asylum, assuming you don't agree with this authority to simply expel them back to Mexico or their home country? Right. I mean, I think this is part of a larger problem of not actually managing the border in a responsible way. And what it requires is the resources. It requires adequate spacing. It requires managing the flow. It requires quarantine people if they actually uh, present a risk. And it's the exact same problem that's been uh, that's arisen every single with every arrival. The response of the federal government, sadly, has always been this is a crisis. This is too many people. We can't handle it. That's been the argument that's made repeatedly. We need to have a system in place that allows for fair and adequate processing and protecting both the public health and the asylum system. We can do it with adequate resources, with adequate planning, with adequate management, just as we can gradually open up the rest of the economy again. But it, it requires resources, it requires planning, not categorically overruling statutes that have been on the books and designed to protect individuals who arrive in the United States. Next is our short takes conversation with Monette Zard and Ian Kissel. So over the past several weeks, Monette, Ian, and I have worked with other experts to produce a set of principles on protecting the human rights of migrants and refugees. And we released a, a document this week called Human Mobility and Human Rights in the COVID-19 Pandemic, Principles of Protection for Migrants, Refugees, and Other Displaced Persons. That also can be found on the Zoberg website. As of today, more than 900 academics have signed onto the principles. Monette, I wonder if you could start us off by talking about the kinds of human rights abuses that we're seeing around the world that convinced us that, uh, about the importance of producing a set of principles. Sure, thank you, Alex, and thanks for having us on today. So I think from very early on in battling the pandemic, we started to get very concerning information coming from China and elsewhere about the threats to human rights in the context of battling uh, COVID-19. Some of the, the very first reports uh, in some ways were entirely predictable and they focused on issues of stigma, xenophobic violence and uh, discrimination against groups based on the misguided assumption that these groups were in some way carriers of the disease and spreading of the disease. So we saw very early on people of Asian descent being targeted. We saw it even uh, reinforced at the highest sector segments of, uh, of the political landscape, sort of reinforcing the link between nationality and the disease in some misguided way. We, uh, in, in Europe, for example, saw asylum seekers being labeled as disease carriers. And again, you know, led very much by, by, by government, sort of uh, linking certain communities with the spread of the disease. So, you know, we saw very early on the, the, the possible threats to certain vulnerable communities because of the association as disease carriers uh, misguided by many. So that was one thing, and it builds on what we know from battling past pandemics, that stigma goes along often with these issues. We also saw the closure of borders very early on in uh, an attempt to control the spread of the disease. And those border closures did not take into account the right to seek asylum, which is enshrined in international law. And as a result, we saw 
migrants and asylum seekers stranded at borders. We saw pushbacks of asylum seekers, you know, just in the last week, asylum seekers, Rohingya trying to get into Malaysia, who were pushed back and, and many starved at sea because of an attempt to control borders and an attempt to control the spread of the disease, really not paying attention to the right to seek asylum. And then finally, also we saw a cluster of issues around, you know, the fact that many vulnerable sectors of society, in particular undocumented migrants and other Others were um, not able to access testing and care in the face of uh, COVID-19. And so we saw discrepancies and are seeing discrepancies in the ability of certain vulnerable sections of our society to be able to, to really make good on their right to health. And if I could add just one more, you know, sort of a layer on all of this uh, was, you know, the controls that the governments were exercising. You know, we see Egypt and others on the messengers who were trying to spread uh, information that was science-based and uh, accurate about what the sources of this virus were, how to protect yourself. We've seen a, a backlash uh, in an attempt by some governments to control information in a way that really isn't science-based um, and doesn't further the cause of public health. There are many, many more human rights challenges, but th those are just four that I wanted to lift up for our conversation today. Ian, what are the sources of law that support the principles? Do the principles purport to be binding international law? And is there a key provision that, that you would want to call attention to? You know, really the goal was to articulate a set of principles that was firmly anchored in international law and especially broadly ratified international instruments and human rights treaties in particular, as well as the kind of opinio juris, as they, as they say in the international law world, but the, really the core doctrinal interpretation of those existing obligations on states that states have developed and taken on uh, on themselves as, as they relate to migration and the context of human mobility in the, the situation of the pandemic. Um, so then supplementing those rights, we looked to regional instruments, like the Inter-American system or the European court, um, some of those systems that were around for years before the core international human rights treaties of the ICCPR and ICESCR were even uh, ratified by states. Um, so very important areas for looking at kind of the benchmarks for international human rights law. And just taking uh, as an example, non-discrimination, which I think, you know, responding to those human rights issues that Monette has lifted up in many ways is the, the anchor for this work. And it's also at the cornerstone of the international legal order. So it's um, enshrined in the UN Charter in a number of places, and of course is a, a key provision in the Universal Declaration, the core international human rights treaties, the Refugee Convention, this idea um, that discrimination and, and the right to non-discrimination is, is really one of the core undertaking, undertakings of states around the world, you know, not just in, in peacetime, but, uh, but at all times. And with that anchor in law, we, we tried to identify a short description that really I, I applied these legal obligations to the context of COVID, and that's the principle in the document. And then we wanted there to be a short description that expanded that um, practical application and supplemented it with, with a further explanation. So that's trying to boil down the, the context in which the rights of migrants are at risk in these different areas, and then share information about the key legal tests. So in, again, in non-discrimination, you see both the discussion of state failures to address the health needs of migrants, and also that 
that constitutes discrimination when it's unreasonable, disproportionate, pursues no legitimate goal, and threatens the well-being of, of really the entire community. And we have, a, of course, a separate article about uh, another key consequence of that right to non-discrimination, which is about the state obligation to pursue uh, and combat stigma, racism, and xenophobia. But, but in all of this, we're trying to take those widely accepted international principles and give states and others a, a ready tool um, that leverages that into the context of COVID. Monette, a number of the principles deal with uh, health issues. Do you want to say a word about those? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, the, you know, the core one, of course, is the right to health enshrined in Article 12 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And I think, you know, that really spells out the right to adequate health care when you are sick. And in the context of this uh, pandemic, what we really are talking about is access to testing, um, access to um, treatment, and, you know, access to information so that, you know, prevention can be made real uh, for all, all segments of our society. Society. And so when we talk about access, access is, is not just a question of financial resources, although financial resources are important, but it's ensuring that people can come forward at, without the fear of reprisals or repercussions, particularly if they're undocumented, um, and, and ensuring that access is really made real uh, for the most vulnerable sections of our community. I mean, obviously, non-discrimination cuts across, as, as Ian has mentioned, the right to access health care. And one of the things that you know is acknowledged in um, the case law and in the Human Rights Committee's findings is the that the right to health is really very deeply connected to the right to food, the right to water, the right to shelter. Um, that those are really intrinsic to the idea of the right to health, and this becomes you know particularly important when we're talking about things like the lockdowns and the quarantines that are being imposed as public health measures to combat the pandemic. So you know. The human rights treaties make allowance for the possibility that there can be certain restrictions in situation in, in the public interest, uh, such as in a public health emergency, for example, to restrict freedom of movement. You know, these are multilateral treaties, states signed onto them. They're quite pragmatic in many ways, but it did spell out some uh, conditions for how those restrictions should be applied. They should be imposed by law, they should be proportionate. And they should be justified by the public interest at hand. And when we say justified, you know, I would add that it really should be justified by the science that underpins the public health motives here. And cutting across all of that, when we think about proportionality and reasonableness, I think we, may, we need to ensure that these lockdowns and quarantines are consistent with other human rights that we're trying to protect, including the right to food, uh, the right to water, the right to shelter. So that issue of proportionality and reasonableness is really is really important when we're thinking about how lockdowns are imposed and whether they're reasonable in the different contexts that we see around the world. What may be appropriate for New York or for Italy may not be appropriate in the context of uh, Niger or a Bangladesh. Um, and we really need to pay attention to how the state is ensuring that even in contexts of lockdowns to protect the public health, that they're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and effectively leaving people to starve at home because they can't have access to a daily means of subsistence. Uh, and there isn't some substitute that's been put in place as a kind of lifeline to ensure that is the case. Ian, your work on the principles focused in part on immigration law enforcement. What are the human rights implications there? 
Yeah, part of this has to do with, again, interpreting the way that states have already constrained their, uh, their actions by signing on to these human rights treaties and, and thinking about, in the context of COVID, how can immigration enforcement expose migrants to additional risks and what are states' obligations to limit that? So in the context of enforcement, that means states really need to be rethinking uh, enforcement activities that would directly expose migrants to risk. So things like raids uh, or other enforcement measures where uh, rates of uh, infection are going up among law enforcement officials and, and are extant in the community that, you know, that kind of uh, activity that creates congregate uh, opportunities for congregate, inter congregate interaction just creates a situation where the government, by virtue of its enforcement efforts, is in fact uh, creating the conditions for infection. Um, so then the second piece on the enforcement is really about due process. Our state's in continuing to process migrants for removal or deportation, uh, placing them at a harm of summary proceedings or arbitrary removals because things like the right to counsel or the right to interpretation uh, or the other legal uh, protections that might be in place outside of the context of COVID, are, those, are the states able to maintain those? So you know, really pushing states to think through how they can safeguard those core uh, fundamental rights. And then in detention, which is a, you know, a situation that has gained quite a bit of attention um, in a number of countries where migrants are detained in great number, you know, there's been a lot of work on the issue of migrant detention outside of the context of COVID. But in COVID, it really changes the situation because the analysis uh, has to take into account the fact of, uh, of the virus and, and the way in which it is so much more easily uh, transmitted in those congregate settings. And that really means that the legality of detention as an immigration enforcement measure has to be completely rethought in the context of the pandemic. Thanks. A, a final question for, for both of you. We've got these nice principles on paper now. How do we bring them to practice? Ian, you want to start? Sure. You know, I think in many ways this is the, the classic story of soft law, of, of principles that uh, are connected to fundamental rights obligations. You know, here we have them coming from uh, academia and civil society, but they're really re-articulating, re restating the things that states have already signed up for. So we're you know, promoting them with international organizations and, and global civil society so that states at the, at the kind of multilateral level um, take into account these basic commitments as they craft uh, guidance and, and recommendations to states. But at the national level, I think, you know, civil society in pursuing litigation or national authorities in developing new plans to respond to the virus can look to these as a ready articulation of, of what basic rights guarantees should be incorporated into state response. Monette, over to you for the last word here. Well, I mean, I, I, I second what Ian has said, and, you know, we hope that these principles will be helpful to that advocacy, to that litigation, to that organizing work. But I also think, you know, they serve a sort of broader public information purpose here, which is the sense that we are in a time of crisis and somehow laws don't apply. These human rights laws were created precisely so that there would be predictability um, in some of these uh, crises type situations, so that there would be predictability in our responses. And, you know, uh, I think the framers of human rights were very visionary, actually, when they put in place some of these parameters. And so, I think one of the messages we want to convey is there's a role for law. There's a law 
a role for law in protecting all of us and uh, in shaping policy and that predictability and, you know, ensuring kind of proportionate and reasonable responses is intrinsic to human rights law and can really help in combating the pandemic. And I think what you stressed earlier is that there, there are limits on many of these rights that are implicit in the rights, provided that governments uh, announce them legally and make sure that they're proportionate to the harm they're trying to prevent uh, and that they're non-discriminatory. So it's not as if these human rights bind the hands of people who need to worry about public health, but they're reminders of the ways in which those actions have to be undertaken so that they don't discriminate against already marginalized groups in society. You've been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our engineer is Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112, and theme music composed by Eli Alenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes, and you can reach us by emailing us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That's tossedtempest.com all one word at gmail.com.